Now, unfortunately, it seems like there is never a shortage of crises in the world. So Sam was just praying a moment ago about 9-11, and, and we're now experiencing sort of a renewed resurgence of, of religious extremism. There is, of course, Chinese and Russian oppression. There are border crises here. There are refugee crises across the globe. There's climate change. There's child trafficking. There's political polarization, not to mention the ongoing pandemic. And that can all feel pretty depressing, and that's just the global issues. Even a little bit more personally, many of us will face various crises coming through the doors, financial pressures, marital strains, personal loss, physical illness, addictions. Like I said, no shortage of crises and problems, except maybe when it comes to those hogs. Huh? I mean, a win. Imagine that. I'm telling you, I was watching that game a little bit in a side last night, watching that game, and it looked like there was a lot of worship going on in that stadium. That field was the altar, and the longhorn was that sacrifice. (laughs) Yep. Some of you need to repent right now. Pretty sure that's idol worship. Saw a lot of it yesterday. Heard it last night. Heard it when I got up still. That's an aside. Right? So there's some of the problems we're not having. Praise God. But apart from football, you're just thankful. No more water polo illustrations. Olympics are over. All right. Apart from football, friends, there are, uh, in all seriousness, there are those times in life when we experience, when we experience what it's like for things to go from bad to worse. And at some point, that happens in every one of our lives, when sort of the bottom drops out. And when life truly gets desperate. Friend, in those moments, to whom do you turn? Where do you go? Where do you look for relief? Do you look to government, as many do, is, is increasingly our last best hope? Do you turn to friends or social networks and look to them to to meet and provide? Do you instead look inward, only trusting in yourself? Or maybe have you just given up, assuming that there are some problems that are just too great, too big for anyone to handle? And so maybe you just numb yourselves with a bottle or some pills. Friends, where will you turn in those moments when it feels like life is just utterly lost? Because that's where Israel is going to find herself this morning in the book of Isaiah. If you've got a Bible, let me invite you to turn there now to the book of Isaiah. We're going to be in chapters 7 through 12. If you don't happen to have a Bible with you, we provide them in the seatbacks before you. And you can actually find Isaiah 7 beginning on page 571. Beginning on page 571. Now, it is six chapters. We're not going to be able to read all of it. I won't be able to cover, obviously, every verse. So let me just first try and give you an overview of the chapters so you have somewhat of, a, of an understanding for the text. And one of the things I said as I've been just working through this series, we've been doing it together in Isaiah, is Isaiah works a little bit like a funnel. There are some recurring themes and cycles that we find over and over. And yet it's not just cyclical, going round and round. As it funnels, it's actually moving toward an end. It's, it's driving somewhere. It's leading us somewhere. And we're going to see that same cycle again this morning. So really in chapter 7 through chapter 9, verse 7, that first cycle, all of that, 7 through 9, 7, deals with a crisis in the southern kingdom of Judah. And then flipping to to chapter 9, verse 8 through chapter 11, that's a second cycle. And in that second cycle, there's a crisis in the northern kingdom of Israel. And both those crises and both those cycles, well, they follow the same pattern. So the people, whether it's Judah in the south, Israel in the north, are going to be confronted with a crisis. And the basic question in the midst of that crisis is, will they trust God to deliver them, or will they be looking to other saviors? So there's going to be a crisis. Sadly, we're going to see. Secondly, they're going to reject God. That's going to lead to their judgment. 
Thirdly, out of that judgment, a remnant will come. They will turn back to God. And then fourthly, out of that judgment will arise hope and salvation. That's just sort of an outline I'm trying to give to you. And that fourfold pattern of crises, rejection, sort of a remnant, and then some hope of salvation, that's going to repeat itself in both of those sections. And yet, out of that different, out of that pattern, out of those cycles, I think what we're going to find within them are two contrasting portraits. So the first is this portrait of King Ahaz, as we'll see, and Israel and the Assyrians. And it's really a portrait of what life is like with a shrinking God. What does it look like to live life with with a small God? To live life sort of with God in the rearview mirror? A life where God is ignored. He's more disregarded, is, is impotent, and is, and is powerless in the face of life's greatest challenges and problems. And yet the second portrait we're going to see is, is that with Isaiah and the remnant. And it's a portrait of actually what life looks like with a sovereign God. Not, not a small shrinking God, but with a sovereign God. Where God is not helpless, where God is not powerless. But instead, he's alive and he's well and he's at the wheel and he's ruling and reigning and governing and guiding all things for his people. Those two portraits are just going to be how we work through the text. Think about the text. They're going to serve as our two points. So we're going to see that portrait first of life, kind of with a shrinking God, versus that second portrait of what is life like with a sovereign God. And the question I want you to be thinking about is in which portrait do you see yourself? In which of these two portraits do you see yourself? And will you believe that God is in fact bigger than your biggest problem this morning? So first, let's think about that first portrait, life with a shrinking God, life with a shrinking God. So look down at your Bibles, chapter 7, verse 1. We're going to start right there, just work through the first two verses. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told that Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. Okay, so stop right there. There's our crisis right there in the first two verses of chapter 7. So Ahaz is now king of, of Judah, the southern kingdom, and in the northern kingdom, Israel, And you'll notice if you read through these verses, it can be a little confusing sometimes because Israel goes by various names. It'll go by Israel, the northern kingdom, or Ephraim, which is the largest tribe in the northern kingdom. Sometimes it's called Samaria because that's the capital city of the northern kingdom. Well, all of those speak to the same thing. It speaks to the northern kingdom of Israel. And that northern kingdom and the nation of Syria, well, they have joined forces against Judah in the south. So Ahaz is now in full crisis mode as chapter 7 opens, right? His advisors are scrambling. His soldiers may well be deserting. People are panicking, right? The grocery shelves, they're clearing out because there's a real crisis, a national crisis they face. And this is the point of decision for Ahaz and the people. In that crisis, where will they turn? In whom will they trust? We pick up the story, chapter 7, verse 3. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Joshbub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Ramalia, because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Ramalia has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it. Let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tobiel as king in the midst of it. Well, thus says the Lord your God, it shall not stand. 
and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is resin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Okay, so right there, Isaiah confronts Ahaz and effectively says, look, I know it appears helpless, but Ahaz, you know the Lord. And when the Lord is on your side, there is no such thing as a helpless situation. There is no such thing as a national crisis when you have this God on your side. Their plans, he says, mean nothing. So don't panic, don't fear. Rather, what? Be firm in faith or you will not be firm at all, he says. My Christian friend, this, that right there, those verses, that is the strength that God calls us to. He doesn't call us as Christians finally to a strength of might or a strength of power or a strength of intellect or a strength of skill. No, Ephesians 6.10, we're to be what? We are to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. That's the strength of faith that Isaiah is calling Ahaz and the people to. Friend, what is faith? Well, faith is our obedient response to the promises and commands of God. That's what faith is. Faith is our obedient response to the promises and commands of God. And that sounds simple, but if you've lived the Christian life at all, you know how difficult that can be because faith often looks futile. And not just fatal, but exercising faith often looks foolish because faith is going to require us, right, to swim upstream. It requires us often to stand alone. Faith requires us to say yes to God's word while all others are saying no to that word and they're laughing at that word. And it calls us to say no to sin and to the world when all others are saying yes to sin in the world. Faith often feels like a losing proposition. Friend, do you know what that's like? Have you experienced that at all as a Christian? You know, every one of us will come to that point, and not just once in life as we follow Christ, and we're going to be confronted with those moments when we have to choose whether or not we will hear and obey the promises of God. Whether that is amidst peer pressure in junior high or high school, that peer pressure to fall in with the the crowd, whether it's not when the hedonistic pleasures of the world are laid at our feet in college, whether it's the clarion call, that computer that beckons us to, to search with our eyes that which we know we shouldn't, whether it's that decision at work when we're confronted with the choice to obey our conscience or to walk down those paths of unethical practices whether it's the decision in marriage to to walk away from temptation or to, to avoid that charming banter, that flirtatious glance. Whatever it is, we all face such moments when we have this fork in the road and we have to choose and we have to decide whether or not in that moment we will obey the promises of God, whether or not we'll believe those promises. My Christian friend, I wonder, how are you doing this morning when it comes to those decisions, those choices? Are you standing firm? You know, sometimes we're tempted to think, ah, you know what, the consequences won't be that great. But look down at chapter 7, verse 10. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you may weary God also? All right, so just right there, what's happening? What's happening is is we've thought about his decision, like rather the dilemma Ahaz faces, And we've coming here to the decision. And at first glance, it's kind of hard to know from verses 10 to 13. There's going to be a sign and some other things that follow. But right there, it's kind of hard to know exactly what's Ahaz's decision. 
And we know that, like, yeah, we're not supposed to put the Lord our God to the test. I think Deuteronomy 6 tells us that. But right there, Ahaz is pulling that one out, and he's trying to use a little piety to, to hide a little hypocrisy. Because if you go read 2 Kings 16 or 2 Chronicles 28, Ahaz did not believe and obey the promises of God. Not at all. Instead, Ahaz jumped into bed with Assyria. So he invited envoys from Assyria right into Jerusalem. He showed Assyria the wealth of his kingdom, even welcomed Assyria into the temple, promising large sums of money to Assyria if they would attack the northern kingdom of Israel and, and Syria. So Assyria and Syria, two different nations, right? Promising him that. And politically, that move right there, that move of Ahaz to jump into bed with Assyria, Politically, that's, that's an astute move. That's a, it seems like a wise move because right there, what he's done is he has made peace with what could be a future foe, Assyria, and at the same time, he's seeking to rid himself of his enemies that are right at his doorstep. You know, that's the kind of thing Henry Kissinger might be proud of a move like that. What he doesn't realize is he just grabbed the tiger by the tail. Right? We'll see that in a moment, though. But in that decision, understands what's happened, right? Ahaz has already relegated God into his rearview mirror. The calculus in his mind was, you know what? This decision is too big, consequences too great, really can't trust God on this one. I'm really going to have to take this decision. I'm going to have to make this one up alone. I'm going to have to take this into my own hands. If he was going to get out of this mess, he had to do it. Friend, I wonder if that ever sounds like you in some of the biggest crises of your life. If so, I wonder how that's working out for you. Because, you know, it won't turn out, sadly, so well for Ahaz and for Judah. And we've thought about the dilemma he faces. This is his decision not to trust God, but the Assyrians. Now we're going to see of their coming destruction. Look down to chapter 7, verse 17. Ahaz is going to rather... Uh, Isaiah will say to Ahaz, the Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah. Okay, so right there, since the days of civil war, right, these days are going to be great. And it's going to be all about the king of Assyria right there. In that day, the Lord will whistle for the fly that is at the end of the streams of Egypt, for the bee that is in the land of Assyria, and they will all come and settle in steep ravines and the clefts of the rocks and on the thorn bushes and all the pastures. And in that day, the Lord will shave with a razor that is hired beyond the river, the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the feet, and it will sweep away the beard also. All right, so... Sometimes the ESV leaves things a little untranslated, right? You're reading and you're scratching your head like, okay, I think I have an idea of what's happening. Well, you can always consult another translation just to help fill in some gaps like the, the CSB or the NIV for clarity. But basically, Isaiah is saying, you know what, Ahaz? You trusted in Assyria. They're actually not going to be your deliverer. They're going to be your destroyer. They're going to wipe things clean. You grab the tiger by the tail, it's going to turn and devour you. That's what Isaiah is prophesying. So that image of shaving is this image of cutting and of clearing. So Assyria is going to roll through the northern kingdom and roll through almost all of Judah, and it is going to clear and cut down everything in its path. People, livestock, animals, all the rest. It's an image of utter destruction that's coming. And yet that sickness of Ahaz to look inward, to trust in self and not in God, that's not unique to him. The same thing we're going to see as you look to that second cycle, as we look to Israel in the north, right? We thought about Ahaz's own decision. When it comes to Israel, Israel, they've already made their decision. They've already entered into their alliances with Syria. They've already rejected God. They're in league with Assyria. So just jump forward with me to chapter 9, verse 8. Chapter 9, verse 8. This starts that section of that second cycle, right? Moving from the southern kingdom to the northern kingdom. Chapter 9, verse 8. The Lord has sent a word against Jacob, right? Israel. And it will fall on Israel. And all the people will know. Ephraim 
and the inhabitants of Samaria, which is to say all of Israel, who say in pride and in arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen, but we will build with dress stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. But the Lord raises the adversaries of Rezin against him, stirs up his enemies. The Syrians on the east and the Philistines on the west devour Israel with open mouth. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Okay, if we keep reading, we're going to find that expression, for all this, his anger is not turned away. His, stand, his hand is stretched out still, as in it's raised to strike his people. We're going to read that three more times. It's going to be repeated, this ongoing judgment of Israel. Because Israel to the north, like the nation to the south, they assumed the biggest problems they faced was the nation of Assyria. Isaiah is saying, listen, I know they look big, I know they look scary, and they look mighty and great, but actually they are not your biggest problem. Judah and Jacob, your biggest problem is your relationship with God, and you forfeited that. That's the root of the problem, and it's seen 9-9 right there with their pride, did you catch that, and their arrogance of heart. Right there, Isaiah, Isaiah is helping us to see how pride is really at the root of sin. It even traces itself back. We can trace it back to that very first sin in the garden. Because at its core, what does pride assume? Pride assumes we know better than God. Pride says, you know what, God, I don't need you to live life. I can live life my own way. My way, not your way. It's seen in this obsessive desire we have as people, even as a culture, for, for autonomy, right? We demand autonomy. We demand to live alone without constraint, right? Moral autonomy, personal privacy, all of that, that is seen in this pride of rejection against God, right? That I can live my way, right? Nobody can tell me how to live, not the government, certainly not God, not some Bible, not some other Christian's, Nobody can tell me. It's my life, my body, my money, my future, my right, right? That's the language we live in. And in that pride, well, that's our own way of dethroning God. That's our own way of removing him off the throne, the rightful rule of our lives. And pride is saying in that moment, I will not answer to another. I will decide what is good and right. I will be master of my fate. In other words, God no, thank you, I will be God. And that right there is at the heart of sin. To take for oneself the rightful place of God. Friend, that's the battle being waged in every human heart. That is at the core of your own battle with God. Whether or not you're a Christian or a non-Christian, we all wrestle with the sin of pride. And the question again being posed is, will Israel, will you this morning, will you submit to God's good and rightful rule over your life? Even that very question, will we submit to God's good and rightful rule over our life? We bucket that question. We bristle at that question. We kick against it because all of us are naturally at war with God. We don't want to do what God says we must do. We want to live life our own way. But friends, that rebellion never ends well. It doesn't end well for Israel. Look at chapter 10, verse 5. So in 9.8 to 10.4, you have these judgments. And then we read in 9.5, sort of, it all comes to a head. Ah, Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury against a godless nation, that's how God is describing his own people. Against a godless nation, I send him, namely Assyria. And against the people of my wrath, I command him to take spoil and seize plunder and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. God is saying Assyria will be the tool of judgment that I will wield in my hand 
And just as Judah will be destroyed, nearly destroyed, so Israel will be destroyed. And maybe you caught that expression, the people of my wrath. Talking about expressions that are just like nails on a chalkboard. The people of my wrath. You know, we don't like to think of God this way. We think to to speak of God with wrath, that's unbecoming, that's unsuitable of God. That's especially unsuitable when it's directed against people. Well, friends, you realize no doubt Israel thought the same. They thought wrath, wrath rather, if wrath even existed, right, it would certainly be directed against other people. Friends, that's what you might think. God directs that against others. But just notice that God here, he's not in any way embarrassed by his wrath. He doesn't hold that truth about himself back. He's not trying to hide it. Because wrath is God's righteous response towards sin. Wrath is actually an expression of God's justice. And here's the thing with God's justice. God never overreacts. He never goes too far. He never explodes in anger. There is nothing irrational. There's nothing disproportionate in God's response. Now, no good person... No good person would be unmoved by evil. If there's a great evil, if there's a great injustice in the world, and someone was entirely unmoved by that, what would we call such a person? Usually you think of some person as like a sociopath, like to be entirely unmoved by some tremendous evil. Friends, if we take away God's righteous anger towards sin, not only will God not be God, but God will no longer be good which is why he's going to judge not just Judah in the south, not just Israel to the north. He's going to judge Assyria as well. So just look forward, chapter 10, verse 12. When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. Right then, you see in pride and arrogance, again, this time in the eyes, of the Assyrian king. For he says, the Assyrian king, by the strength of my hand, I have done it. By my wisdom, for I have understanding, I remove the boundaries of peoples and plunder their treasures. Like a bull, I bring down those who sit on thrones. My hand has found like a nest the wealth of the peoples. And as one gathers eggs that have been forsaken, so I have gathered all the earth. And there was none that moved a wing or opened the mouth or chirped. But shall the axe boast over him who hews with it? Or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? As if a rod should wield him who lifts it. Or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood. Therefore the Lord God of hosts will send wasting sickness among his stout warriors, amongst the Assyrians. And under his glory, a burning will be kindled like the burning of fire. The light of Israel will become a fire and his holy one a flame. And it will burn and devour his thorns and briars in one day. The glory of his forest and of his fruitful land, the Lord will destroy both soul and body. And it will be as when a sick man wastes away. The remnant of trees of his forest will be so few that a child can write them down. So few as in a child could count them. Friend, this is the God we encounter in the Bible. He is big. He is sovereign. A God that wields nations like an axe in his hand. Right? That's what Assyria is. We struggle to think of God in this way. We think of God with this kind of control, this kind of power, this kind of sovereignty, and the personal implications are sometimes too great for us. Because that kind of a God right there that I just read of, that's a God that everyone has to reckon with. That's a God that can't be ignored. That's a God that you and I are accountable to. That's a God that every nation, the largest and greatest nations of the earth are accountable to. And we don't want to be accountable. 
We don't want to confront that reality, so what do we do? We shrink him down to size. We make him less sovereign, less wrathful, less righteous. And in doing so, we attempt to then stick him up in some moral shelf in our own library. We put in the rear view mirror of our lives, and we try to put him out of view. But friends, Isaiah is saying, if that's you, behold this God. Do not remove this God from your view. All the problems in your life, all the problems in the world, they're not unimportant. But many of the things we deem ultimately important, well, they aren't. The ultimately important thing and the really significant thing, the main question everyone should be asking when reading about this God is how will I stand before this God? How am I to give an account to this God who is so righteous and so just and so powerful? I wonder if right there, verse 18, recognizing this God can destroy both body and soul. Did you hear echoes of Jesus right there? Matthew 10, 28. Jesus says, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Yeah, that's Jesus right there. That's the one to fear. Not terrorism or climate change finally or COVID or cancer. God is saying, no, you've got to come to grips with me. You have to behold me, understand me, fear me. Friend, do you properly fear this God? And I don't just mean be afraid of him. Though there is an element, certainly, of which that kind of fear is appropriate. Like when Isaiah is before the Lord, and he's like, woe is me, I'm undone, I'm lost. There is some of that fear. But there's also a fear in the sense that this God becomes the central point of reference in your life. This God becomes the one that you principally regard. His opinion becomes your governing opinion. Do you weigh everything in your life in relation to this God? Because that's what it means to fear him. Whether it's school or your job or your relationships or your budget, all of that should be in relationship to this God. And that's what it means to fear him. And to cherish him by cherishing his words. You know, these were the things that Ahaz, that Israel, that Judah, that Assyria... They wouldn't do. And in God's response of judgment, we have a portrait of what it looks like when, to borrow from the title of a book, people are big and God is small. And friend, if that's you, take warning because it doesn't end well for any of them and neither will it for you. But thankfully, that's not the only portrait we're given. We're given a second portrait. And it's not life with a shrinking God, with a small God. It's actually life with this big sovereign God. What does it look like to, to follow him, to believe in him? Because it's not just Judah. It's not just Israel that are faced with big problems, right? Isaiah himself is faced with some big dilemmas and crises. So just try to put yourself for a moment in Isaiah's shoes, can you imagine being called to preach this message to these people, to the southern kingdom, to the northern kingdom, to say the things he says about Assyria, knowing the northern kingdom is going to share them with the Assyrian king, and they're going to be breathing down your neck? He had to be the most unpopular preacher around. right? Assyria certainly had a bounty on this guy's head. right? All the fire and brimstone and impending judgment... He would have been heckled and booed and perhaps beaten, right? He'd be the butt of every joke if there's national media like New York Times, Washington Post, right? He's the whipping boy for these guys. They're just mocking and making fun of him. It would have been so much easier at this point for Isaiah to, to what? To soften the edges of his message, not to ruffle any more feathers, to fall in mind with the new religious and moral orthodoxy, right? That would have been so much easier for Isaiah. And that's the dilemma he faces at this point. And if you're a Christian in the room, you know that dilemma because you often face that same dilemma. 
especially if you're younger. Because the world hates the message of this kind of a God. It cries out for tolerance, but it has no tolerance for this God. Making these kind of demands that this God makes, it has no place for that God. The academy doesn't have a place for him. Secular media doesn't have a place for him. Increasingly, corporate America doesn't have a place for him. Right? They can't stomach it, can't tolerate it. And increasingly, all those who espouse trust in this God, well, there's no place for you either. Which is why God is going to call out to Isaiah in the midst of his own dilemma, in the midst of his own crisis. And what will God say to Isaiah? Look back to chapter 8, verse 11. Chapter 8, verse 11. The sweet sound of pages turning. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear nor be in dread, but the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken." All right, so what's God saying to Isaiah? God's saying, listen, Isaiah, I know you have fallen out of cultural favor. I know you've certainly at this point fallen out of political favor. You've lost friends. They've no doubt sought to silence you. They probably don't even let you into the temple or any kind of a synagogue. They're going to probably try to put you in prison for hate speech, right? That's where Isaiah stands with the people. But God is saying, don't follow their path. Follow me, regard me, fear me, honor me, and I will be your sanctuary. I will be your safe haven. I will be your place of rest. God knows the world is divided over him. Either he is a sanctuary, that place of rest and protection, or as you see, he is that stumbling block, the one people kick and curse for getting in the way. Those are the two responses. And you know, it was exactly the same with Jesus. Sometimes we can have this temptation to talk of Jesus and culture will talk of Jesus like he is the foremost humanitarian, right, and social activist. And that's how they think of Jesus, right, the, kind of the poster child for the World Food Program, you know, the one who right, fed the masses, or, or maybe for Oxfam as he cared for the poor, as he fought for injustice. And so Jesus would be the one we put on all the promotional videos, right? He'd be with all the with all the children. He might be kind of like Bona with you too, right? Just picture that, but without the cool glasses. Right? So that's how some people think of Jesus. But friends, if you read the Gospels, no one thought of Jesus that way. When people encountered Jesus, they either loved him or they hated him. Nobody was more polarizing than Jesus. You either gave your entire life to him as his followers did or you sought to kill him as the Jews did and all those who hated his followers. It was one or the other, which is why Paul and Peter understood Jesus himself was this rock of stumbling. So actually, speaking of Jesus, Paul will quote in Romans 9.33, quote, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Right, so you catch that promise. Whoever believes in him, whoever hopes in this Jesus, who is this rock of stumbling, whoever hopes and trusts in him will not be put to shame, not finally be put to shame. Israel had rejected that word. Isaiah received it. How will Isaiah respond? That's his crises. How will he respond? Look down to chapter 8, verse 16. Chapter 8, verse 16. Bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord. 
who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. Just stop right there. So did you catch Isaiah's response? I what? I will wait for the Lord. I will hope in Him. Waiting and hoping. Friends, that is the cry of every faithful Christian. And it always has been. Waiting and hoping. So when all appears bleak, and when the last glimmer of light and hope seems to have faded, what does the Christian do but to lean further in, waiting and hoping? Friend, is that not what marked Abraham's life? Hebrews 6.15, and thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. And that posture of waiting and hoping, wasn't that true, not just for Old Testament saints, but is that not true for us? We read in Titus 2.13 that we are to be those who are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Why? Because, Hebrews 9.28, Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to bear sin but to save those who are what? Eagerly waiting for Him. Friends, that right there, waiting and hoping, that is the posture of the Christian life. The posture of our Christian lives is not triumphalism, it's not success, it's not power, it's not grasping after prominence and, and boasting in that. It's this life of waiting upon God. It's this life of hoping in the promises of God when everything around us, like Isaiah, screams otherwise. But friends, that waiting and hoping, don't think that's passive. It's not passive. Notice how does Isaiah wait and how does Isaiah hope? He waits and hopes by what? By, by resting in God's Word. By looking into and trusting in God's Word. Right? What does he say? 8.20. To the teaching. To the testimony, that's where Isaiah goes. It's there in God's word where Isaiah finds strength to wait and to hope. It's there in his word where the lies of this world are exposed and the promises of God are thus encountered. You know, we saw this back in chapters 1 to 5. A Christian's relationship with God's word says everything about the relationship with God. Is not Isaiah modeling that very thing right here? Our relationship with God's word says everything about our professed relationship with God. For it's there in God's word, what? It's there in his word where we truly meet him, where we learn about him, where we come to genuinely know and actually love him. Which is why those who reject this word, Isaiah's going to say, those who brush this word aside are those who, what, quote, have no dawn. As in, they have no spiritual future. Something to think about when your Bible goes for long periods closed in your life. Might that be saying something about your spiritual future? But it's right here that we also read what of God's promises. The promise that despite how bleak it may look, what does he say? God is with us. Chapter 8, verse 10. God is with us. The promise that we need not be afraid of whatever may come for us. So just jump forward to, to chapter 10, verse 24. God's going to say and give this promise to Isaiah. Chapter 10, 24. Be not afraid of the Assyrians when they strike with the rod and lift up their staff against you as the Egyptians did. For in a very little while, my fury will come to an end and my anger will be directed to their destruction. And so he's going to talk 
about what it's going to look like when Isaiah saves the nation, when they march through, when they get right up and they halt at Nob right there in verse 32, the, the hill overlooking Jerusalem, the mass of the Assyrians looking down upon the city. And in that moment, when it looks all is lost, chapter 10, verse 33, Isaiah gets the promise, Behold, the Lord your God of hosts will lop the bows with terrifying power. He's speaking what's going to happen to the Assyrian army, what he's going to do. The great in height will be hewn down. The lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe, and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. So catch the irony. God has said Assyria is the the arrogant axe that he's going to use, and then he's going to hack them down like an axe. He will deliver his people. That's the promise God leaves with Isaiah. And if you actually read ahead to chapter 37, you're going to see exactly how that fulfillment comes to pass. Friends, God makes good on his promises. You have got to know that. Because we live in a world where there are lots of empty promises. There are lots of broken promises. Now, I'm not picking on politicians, but they're easy fodder here, right? George H.W. Bush, read my lips, right? No new taxes. You know how that one went. Or even President Biden this past month promising on national TV that he would stay in Afghanistan until, quote, we got every last American out. And then we leave a couple hundred behind. Friends, the Lord is not like that. The Lord doesn't make promises and then rescind them and then say, oh, there were other circumstances I couldn't foresee. Every promise the Lord makes proves true. So my Christian friend, will you consider the promises of God? Consider them. What are some of the promises he makes to you? Well, God promises that he is with you, that he will never leave you nor forsake you, that his spirit even now is ever living and interceding for you, That his own son has gone ahead of you and is now preparing in heaven a place for you. That that same son will one day come back for you. And in that day and until that day, he will keep you because nothing can separate his love from you. Those are all the promises God makes to us. And he keeps every single one. He means them. He means to keep them. And my Christian friend, he means you to trust them. He knows, though, our faith is weak. And so one of the things he does is he confirms those promises with signs. How is Judah to know? How is Isaiah to know that God will really deliver? He's going to give them a sign. Back in chapter 7, verse 14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Chapter 9, verse 16. For unto us a child is born. Now wait, right there, just stop. A child, seriously? God, you're saying deliverance from the Assyrians and from all our enemies is going to come through a child. How about a warrior king? How about a military general? How about someone proven and tested in battle? Someone strong, someone impressive. That's what we would look for. That's what Israel chose in Saul, and that worked out real well. That's what Herod looked for. That's what Israel and even the disciples looked for and were confused with Jesus. But it won't be just any child. For we read, the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And where should we look for this kind of a child who will be that kind of a king? Isaiah 11.1, 1, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. In other words, this one is to come from David's own line. Chapter 11, verse 10. And of this one, not just Israel, but whatever you of this one, the nations shall inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. 
So right there, God is helping Isaiah and us to see that all of his promises find their yes and amen in this child who is Christ. This Jesus is not just the promise and fulfillment to Israel. It's the promise to Abraham, the promise to the nations, even bigger than Isaiah could have imagined. So friend, if you've come here this morning, if you've come here as a non-Christian, what will you do with this Jesus? What will you do with this Jesus? Because, you know, sometimes people talk about faith like faith is just some blind leap into the darkness. I want you to see that's ridiculous. 700 years before Jesus was even born, these specific prophecies were being made about him. And every one of them came true just as Isaiah prophesied. Not to mention all that he prophesied about what happened to the northern kingdom, to Syria, to Assyria. Everything prophesied here. If you just keep reading, it happens. It came to pass. Faith is not a leap into the darkness. Faith is actually a leap into light. It's a leap into the light and a decision to trust God on the basis of his promises. If you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, will you believe in such sure and certain promises? You know, we read earlier of how God was raised, his hand was raised to strike his people in their sin. Recognize on the cross, that strike would fall upon Christ for all those who would repent of their sin and trust in Jesus. So either that strike, that hand of God, will fall upon Christ, or it will fall upon you. It will fall upon one or the other. Christ will bear it, or you will bear it eternally. Tragically, Israel, Judah, they refused to believe these promises, Christ became for them a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Their enemies were increasingly big, and this God became increasingly and shrinkingly small. But for Isaiah and for the remnant, however bleak it looked, they believed this sovereign God who ruled, the nat- ruled nations and nature They believed in his promises that these things would come to pass. They waited and they hoped and they trusted. They believed God was in fact bigger than their very biggest problems. Friends, will you believe the same this morning? Let's pray. Oh God, we pray and we pray that as we work through chapters like this, as we behold you and you confront us and in your glory and in your majesty, it is amazing and yet it is humbling and sometimes hard. God, we pray that we would submit to you our good and righteous ruler through Christ and his death on the cross for sinners. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You know, this section, these six chapters of Israel, are some, uh, of rather Isaiah, are sometimes called the book of Emmanuel because there are so many promises in these six chapters to this child who will be God with us. So we're going to close singing, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, which is not just a Christmas hymn, though it is a Christmas hymn, but it's the longing of every Christian heart. Let's stand and sing.